0: Welcome to Club Management. You can find the show on all streaming platforms, including here on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash clubmanagement1. I'm your host, Shannon Dawson. If you'd like to make a donation to the show, which we would absolutely love, you can at patreon.com slash clubmanagement1. This is episode 20. In the last show, we left off talking about this idea of live streaming, and it's become a really vital way for DJs like myself and musicians to connect with fans while we've been in lockdown. We've seen some amazing things happen with the creativity too, from partying and augmented realities, to getting VIP access into the bedrooms and homes of our favorite DJs and musicians. It's also been a really great way for us to get our minds off the stress of the pandemic and bring us back to a more hopeful reality. The technology has always been around, right? It's not necessarily quite new. I mean, I've been a longtime fan of livestream platform Boiler Room, who's been broadcasting musical events from places around the world. But in early March, we began to see DJs flock to apps to utilize their livestream capabilities, and we saw how powerful it could truly be with Boogie Down Productions' D-Nice, who hopped behind the decks and bought upwards of 100,000 people together for a dance party with his Club Quarantine Instagram Live event. Suddenly, DJs were flocking to Instagram Live to play sets, and on Facebook as well. Now, famed livestream gaming platform Twitch is becoming the go-to for DJs looking to connect with fans. I've done a few live streams in lockdown too, and with Twitch's affiliate promotion, folks were able to sign up to receive donations from partygoers while they brought good vibes during their sets. But this time has been really rough for musicians and artists in particular. And if you're making a living off nothing but music, imagine how devastating this period is. Artists and musicians are scrambling, trying to figure out how they'll be able to make a living during this time with mass cancellation of shows and with the burden of paying rent and other life essentials. I reached out to Philip Golub, Olympia Kazi, and Mark Rebo, who were on the Executive Steering Committee of the Music Workers Alliance. For the last year, the organization has come together with other independent musicians and DJs to find solutions surrounding the unfair treatment and lack of benefits that music workers face in contracts, the digital domain, and in situations like this.
1: It's dire on a lot of fronts. On the government front, there, is, there are extreme delays in getting the assistance that was supposed to come to us through the CARES Act. So, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of different aspects, but for people who have split W-2 and 1099 work, all of their unemployment is attached to their W-2 work. And a lot of us have minimal income from W-2, but a lot of income from 1099. So we're getting much less benefits than we should be.
0: That's Philip Golub. He talked about just how difficult it's been for folks in the music industry to get PUA, or pandemic unemployment assistance. And there are so many different barriers affecting people from getting relief.
1: For the people that are supposed to get PUA, uh, pandemic unemployment assistance, through their 1099 work, most people have yet to see those benefits, even though weeks have gone by, because the states have been delayed and doling it out. And then there's all the people in, whether it's because they are undocumented or don't have social security numbers or simply work in the cash economy, um, who don't have access to those benefits at all. And there is some money through institutions like uh, Music Cares and the Jazz Foundation. Uh, which people like that can apply to, but the funds are limited and the organizations are really, really overextended. And some of them have run out of money. We have someone who's running a little blog and a questionnaire, a question form to answer people's questions about this process who reports to us that he's he's seeing people uh, through his form or on in COVID Facebook groups about how to apply for benefits. Uh, people who are contemplating suicides who are not knowing how they're gonna make their rent or buy groceries. Um, You know, I feel personally very lucky to have a teaching salary which has continued. Um, And there are some people like that who are lucky, but there are many, many, many people who I know and, and who are in our broader circle, who are in a really, really dire situation.
0: Mark Rebo is a musician, and he's played alongside some legends like Tom Waits and Elvis Costello. Mark came up in New York's No Wave scene in the 80s and now he has a really cool band called Ceramic Dog. Like most musicians, Mark made most of his money from touring. But with no clear date on when things will reopen, many musicians like him are facing rough times ahead with no work in sight. With live streaming becoming another way for musicians and DJs in particular to find some financial relief, there's still a lot of gray area in the digital domain.
2: The problem right now is that touring was the majority of people's income. And the reason that Music Workers Alliance is responding to this crisis the way it is, is because The the fact that live work is shut down throws the focus on recorded work, which now means largely online. Now means, well, it means almost all online, either ordering, you know, from uh, Bandcamp, ordering CDs or downloads through Bandcamp, or mostly streaming. And the problem that we're facing is that the market online is terrible. That's the problem. 47% of the world's music is available for free on YouTube. And most, the large majority of those uh, files, the, the, the people who created them are not getting paid. You can't sue the major corporations that engage in, this is called copyright infringement. When, when you do that, when you take someone's a work Without their permission and without paying them, that's called an infringement of their copyright. And so there are entire platforms like YouTube, for example, whose, whose business model is built on infringement. And the reason they get away with it is because of a law called the Safe Harbor Law, which is, if you want to get technical, it's the Safe Harbor Clause of Section 512 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1997, 98, And that says that they can't be sued, That, which means that they can get away with this mass infringement. So that is why there's, there's a crisis now. Part of it is because of COVID-19, but part of it is because the market for our work has been destroyed by this unfair law.
0: Let's take Spotify, for example. According to Digital Music News, Typically, Spotify pays artists 0.00365 cents per stream. So that means that you would need to have 1 million streams on Spotify to make a sustainable amount of cash, which would probably round out to around $3,650. And you'd be able to keep most of that money if you owned your master's and publishing, which we should probably save for a whole nother episode. But if you're a small, independent artist or DJ, this could be a bit difficult. Olympia said these major platforms aren't doing enough, especially during the pandemic.
3: I mean, they're doing nothing or little or or they've always hurt us in some way. So not everything, but there is a range. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I I think uh, there are a lot of them who right now, um, you know, they're doing efforts at uh, an advocacy level, writing letters. Some of them, we also joined the Music Workers Alliance about making sure that the CARES Act um, contains, you know, benefits for music workers and that those benefits are extended. Because of, of how unexpected all this was and because the environment was already so complex and dysfunctional and exploitative in many instances, so we have to deal with on one hand an emergency situation. So what can we do to get to people benefits now? Then there is the the challenges of implementation and that has been crappily all over. Every state has been different. But to give you an example, New York State just now, after two months, people have applied, are about to start getting, or they just got last week, their first pandemic unemployment assistance check. So if you consider this, and you consider the fact that the state did nothing to suspend rents and other expenses, so people are found themselves to be having to pay all these things and having no insurance and, and benefits and, and any assistance. So it, it's been very bad. Um, individual funds and GoFundMe, et cetera, I think they don't have the scale to address the scale of the problem. Uh, and, uh, and so some companies have tried to do things, but fundamentally none of the companies has the capacity. Maybe, you know, maybe Facebook and Google, uh, if they do a serious thing, could do something. But any other initiative is is very small to address the magnitude of the problem right now. And some of them, to be honest, have been offensive, like the tip jars that uh, some of these stream services are putting. They're they're not at all what, what things should be happening
0: right now. Not all digital music platforms have been bad. Bandcamp stunned a lot of artists in the community when they rolled out their monthly event, Bandcamp Day. This was a time where they waived their revenue share, and 100% of the profit goes directly to the artists. Sony even showed up too, donating $100 million in their global relief fund to medical care workers, creators, and artists who have been impacted by COVID. But the digital domain has become a wild, wild west when it comes to digital music and live streaming. And according to Olympia, there's a lot that we need to study and unpack in order for artists to benefit financially for bringing their talents to Twitch, Facebook and Instagram Live. Uh, so I
3: think this is a very, very uh, complex issue that we are just starting to study and unpack. But we are finding, I think, ourselves in, again, a, how do we call it, a contradictory situation. Because what happens is when one of the DJs or the musicians is doing something live, a performance live on a platform like Instagram, Facebook, or Twitch, those are all very different platforms. But right now, what is happening is this performer is driving traffic to these platforms, and these platforms are gaining revenue from the ads that they place there. And the, 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 the performance doesn't have a cut for those, right? They don't get anything. On one hand, they provide a service because they provide this platform. And so there were reports made that maybe Facebook is going to be putting some paywalls in order for you to access some of these features. So now not only are you driving traffic in their platform and they're getting rich by the advertisement, but you also need to pay them more and then just hope to get some donations. Uh, so so uh, we feel that there should be an evaluation of these platforms and some regulation uh, from the government about how these people should be operating because it sounds like it's the far west. We also heard from the copyright expert that that uh, uh, seminar that you attended with us that uh, it sounds like some of these platforms may don't don't even have the proper licensing for people to be playing music up there. So we need to ensure that all of them pay the proper licensing and and so. But but the problem is, you know, all this is happening in real time. So we don't know how 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 fast we can act so that there, there is some fairness. Uh, and that's why, you know, the big elephants in the room, they should just acknowledge that and just create very quickly an emergency fund. And then let's start a conversation about how do we make uh, uh, the online, the digital domain, uh, you know, fairer. Because right now, uh, it really exploits mainly the 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 uh, cultural producers and that's not okay. That should not ever have been the case.
0: Copyright has always reared its head as an issue in live streaming, with sets being flagged or portions of sets being muted. Philip said it might be wise to switch to Zoom to avoid this. I'm
1: I'm not speaking in in the sense of representing a something that MWA believes as should be policy or, or should be an approach. But in the immediate in the immediate short term, while DJs need money right now and are getting taken down on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube with these sort of questionable claims. um, Something I have just personally seen, I'm just speaking on behalf of myself, is DJs uh, doing sets on Zoom. So in other words, they advertise uh, that they're going to do a set on their normal social media, but they do the set itself on Zoom, um, which, you know, you can't be taken down on Zoom. And that has been, you share your computer audio through Zoom. And that has been uh, something that I've just seen DJs do to get by in the immediate short term.
0: MWA has created a petition designed by and for musicians, DJs, and other creators, looking to gain relief during these uncertain times. And with the petition having a little over 5,000 signatures, MWA's mission to bringing justice within the music industry feels hopeful and possible. These last few months have been tiring for folks like myself who don't have work, And again, if you're an artist who makes all of your income from music, this could be a strenuous time. I had to check in with folks to see how they were doing, and who better to talk to than DeForest Brown Jr., also known as Speaker Music. He's been unapologetically reclaiming and restoring the roots of African-American influence and historical imprint in techno with his music, laden with texture, grit, and digital hi-hats. DeForest's music sounds like art, painting a vivid picture of techno's industrial roots from Detroit. The ethos is carried over in his clothing label, Make Techno Black Again, which all serves as a reminder that the genre is blacker than ever. We had a chat on how the pandemic has affected him and some of his uncertainty around the live stream boom and gray areas within the digital domain.
4: I've been following the music industry proper for I guess around 15 or so years. Yeah, I started like in high school, like just downloading music and reading a bunch of magazines and over the years kind of getting a sense of like how things worked and eventually like, you know, moving to new york and working at magazines and freelancing and eventually making music and it's there's never been a time that i've been involved with the industry where it seemed functional hmm. or or like equitable in any any way like it's um and so yeah the, the thing is the music industry has been kind of a shit show for i mean really since its inception if you think about something like like the billboard charts like they were an advertising firm in like the 1800s they're not they're not a proper um musicological like institution that we ought to be respecting it's a monopoly Mm. of of ad agencies um and so when thinking about like what music means culturally but also in particular to like america and the various like political social developments and traumas that we've had since the beginning of like what we consider to be like a proper um music industry from like say like the 40s and 50s like motown like um kind of recording studio and final pressing plants and stuff like all the way up to present wow. it just i don't know i i mean i, I just think about something as kind of as brilliant and as corny as, like, Marvin Gates, what's going on, right? And it's and on, like, on Motown Records in LA, he, like, records and, like, you know, what is going on? Like, what is the Vietnam War? Like, what are we all involved in? And when I'm sitting on Twitter in the middle of a pandemic that has completely flattened the entire, like, music industry game and airlines are going bankrupt and I'm looking at clubs in Amsterdam and South Korea, like, trying to reopen as if, again, airlines aren't going to be a thing in the next few years right i I start to really wonder where everyone's heads are at like what kind of like what industry are we saving and what kind of um and what does it mean to try to save an industry that is barely paying like its constituents as i guess what are we up to like ninety seven thousand people dead now in the country
0: yeah yeah just skyrocketed
4: yeah and it's like like I'm all about fighting for I mean at this point it to me it seems like the Spotifys have won the Amazons have won mm. and we kind of need to kind of you know have a time out <laughs> like in this like,
5: <laughs> like in this...
4: yeah as like musicians and like artists and curators and producers and all of that jazz like critics we all need to like get together and just go okay what is our purpose right now? Cause mm-hmm. clearly nobody's getting paid well to like express any feelings. Hence why I don't think I've seen like a coronavirus album coming out yet.
5: Mm-hmm. Not
4: that like, you know, not that anyone should be like capitalizing on this moment, but I mean, it, I think it's kind of easy to get what I mean. It's just.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that I've also found myself in this time really reflecting like, what am I doing? What does like even DJing or, you know, even going to parties mean to me, you know, mm-hmm. what is, what is the meaning behind it? Um, and I want to thank you so much for being really unapologetic about speaking on these issues. Um, no, of course. Yeah. Yeah.
4: No, I mean, I think it's a bit difficult because I mean, I've been talking about the collapse of the mu- music industry for the last like six years or so. Mm-hmm. And it just, Because it's so clear that when you have a company like Spotify that is not American coming in and signing or or signing deals with like the three major record labels, like Universal and so on, and they're paying artists 0.004 percent or um, 0.004 cents per stream. But then they're able to to throw like 100 million at Joe Rogan for a podcast. It's pretty clear that we lost something along the way. Hmm. And so yeah it's like I, I don't know I just don't see the point in being mum about it at this point like it's like it's it's kind of now or never
0: right right um I want to talk a little bit about this whole live streaming boom that's going on at the moment because now artists are trying to scramble and figure out, you know, how can I still release music and also maintain some sort of relationship with the fans? Um, so, you know, DJs are going over to sites like Twitch and Facebook and Mixcloud to do sets. Um, yeah, Which is a cool thing. You know, I've seen a lot of creativity come from the live streams these last couple of weeks. But now there's another problem in terms of actually giving DJs uh, a a reasonable amount of income to do these live streams. And then Mm -hmm. there's a lot of gray area in terms of how uh, it's going to affect musicians and DJs in general. Um, What are your thoughts about the live stream boom that's happening right now? Well, this
4: actually kind of touches back on the Spotify thing and the fact that again, the average stream gets an artist point zero zero four cents. <laughs> we already had really shitty rules for like how to compensate artists, right? Like prior to this, like need to be like, uh, I guess, completely in the digital realm with it, with mm-hmm. these exchanges. So it's um, when I see a boom in live stream, all I am seeing is a whole industry run into uh, like a like a small room with one door and the door gets like closed on them
5: right
4: and it's like i mean obviously i i've participated in a few live streams i've i i don't really think we have much of a choice
5: mm-hmm. in, in the
4: matter um just given like how the virus is transmitted so it's a thing of like how do we
0: yeah. I was, I was, I was, yeah. was going to say it's kind of a double edged sword because while these platforms are, you know, really, uh, you know, they really don't have some of the interests of the artist in mind. But also you depend on these platforms to get your music out to your fans and, and you know, share your your music. So it's a bit of a double edged sword for you, I would imagine. And, and for me as well, because I'm a DJ, too. Um,
4: yeah, this is something I've been trying to track um, prior to this because you, you think about something like Twitch, for example, which is becoming kind of like the leading company in live streams. And it's nice that like Mixcloud also tried to jump in in a way. Mm-hmm. But the thing with Twitch to look out for is that their own A, they're owned by Amazon B in November or December of last year, they began hiring people across New York and China for um, music management um, and music management positions to try to figure out how to monetize music in the same way that Twitch has monetized video games. Mm. And on top of that, they've also collaborated with SoundCloud on a donation model. Um, So when you see that donation button on SoundCloud, that's actually coming from Twitch, which is circa Amazon. (laughs) And so again, when we talk about like running into the one room of like possibility with like live streaming it's kind of like just saying hey skynet take all of my content take all of my money and like let's just like here just just take it um and unless we unless we're critical about how we're approaching these live streams and like finding ways to monetize like outside of uh twitch and amazon and soundcloud and all these other platforms i don't know yeah but i mean at the same time we also have to we have to do the live streams and we have to do it earnestly mm. or else there's nothing uh, worth fighting for i guess
0: yeah that makes sense um i was also doing an interview prior to this with the music workers alliance and they were saying oh, that cool. yeah yeah they're really great um you know that obviously this copyright infringement thing is also playing a really big downfall Mm -hmm. right now with twitch because you play something and then you can find out later that your whole set is pretty much muted because (laughs) you play you know you've kind of got yourself into some some gray area with that too so um and they were also saying that facebook might be introducing a paywall for djs to access that Mm -hmm. part to stream on there so yeah it's just like it just feels like you just can't win no matter what you know um yeah yeah it really. Does. Yeah, i mean
4: djing is kind of a it it's a djing as like a form is a funny thing because it is completely based off of the art of playing other people's music
5: mm-hmm.
4: and i don't see that as being like a a downside to the form at all mm-hmm. like in fact that's like what makes it creative is taking like these artifacts and like placing them in like a linear line um and, and kind of blending these like recorded experiences for mm-hmm. like you know something like greater mm-hmm. but in the larger record recording like industry and thinking about again billboard this like chart system being an advertising firm and not eh, like a, a government funded or um, collegiate like institution
5: mm-hmm.
4: you're sitting with um yeah, you're kind of sitting with a format that has no way to sort of I mean, theoretically, every and there's been people that have suggested this with DJing, but every time you play a person's track, there should be like a a sort of um, a royalty that's paid through a ledger immediately to like that specific artist. Right. And so, let's say you're playing like a three-hour set with like you know, 300 records. That's that's a lot of money being juggled around a single person's set, like on a on a Saturday night. If you know what I mean, like, and it's. Yeah, we're in a weird position because, like, it's when it was coming up in America, DJing and stuff like that. It was, it was a cool thing to do, if you know what I mean. It was a cool form. It was like using these like technologies of like the turntable, and in some cases with like Juan Atkins with like the the 808 drum machine and like mixing those with vinyls. Like that was a that was a new form of or way of using like uh, of technology and information, but. Mm As things have digitized there hasn't really been a, a a way to like to disperse this this money um in a No,
0: in a... i guess i'll say
4: responsibly okay <laughs> yeah i'll say responsibly and it's not necessarily on the, like i wouldn't fault, fault the dj for this at all it, it, it is a an industry thing that if you're going to build an industry off of this kind of practice there ought to be
5: mm-hmm.
4: i mean ways that 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 money like kind of accumulates in value and cultural value and it just
5: yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah. This it's a it's a definitely a, a hard conversation to have i also see some djs like selling mixes right now as a form of making money and in no means do i knock anyone but that there's also some well, yeah, a weird space with that, too, um, especially. Yeah, I've
4: seen you... some, uh, some clashes online <laughs> over that. I <laughs> some DJs do. being like, hey, uh...
0: Like you can't just sell my music. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, I guess you, whatever you got to do, you got to do. Um, but yeah, there's, it's a tricky time right now. I want to talk a little bit about, um, the article you wrote entitled how platform capitalism devalued the music industry. Um, in your piece, you're talking here about how the digital domain has always kind of been this wild, wild West, especially with big brands and sponsorships coming in and taking things over. Um, but you touch on something really interesting, and I think it, it really draws some attention to what's happening now um, with this live streaming, VR becoming a way for people to experience a club, um, mm-hmm. have a club experience now, um, specifically with a quote that directs to Grimes. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing her her name right, but she's another artist off of 4AD. Is it Holly Herden or Yes. Yeah. yes and she talks about how ai is going to at some point and te- uh, you know eventually take over the live performance world um what do you think about that do you think that partying post-covid could be some sort of vr experience until things become safe for us to return to the dance floor
4: so this is a a two-pronged answer mm. um well the first this is kind of this leans a bit into why the "Make Techno Black Again" project that I work on with my uh, my partner's clothing line uh, Etcha. Yeah. Like, I the part of the reason this brand exists is because I find this idea of like of all music being AI created and virtual be that that's a very specific luxurious and delusional perspective by a very specific demographic and color of people um, <laughs> that. frankly has little to nothing to do with my you know diasporic west african slash deep south heritage and how i interact with music
5: Mm
4: -hmm. i sure i i mean i as a media theorist i find technology to be like fascinating i find it to be helpful but it does not replace culture and it does not replace um it doesn't replace other people Mm -hmm. and i would say as a friend of holly's but also as like a a lurker of like Grimes career and mm. just kind of like constantly side-eyeing her to see like <laughs> where she's pushing things. Yeah. I find both of them to be presenting very fascistic ideas that just aren't simply not true. Mm. Um, <laughs> but will be true because we do live in a majority white uh, society. Um, mm. And so that, I guess that leads into the second part of the, of this, right. Is, um, at what point do we start saying, No, I don't want all of my music to be digital? No, I don't think that uh going out on a Friday night should require a giant like holographic robot to be like serving <laughs> me like cocktails. <laughs> like like there's like I don't need Elon Musk's uh, you know, wet dreams to be like like I don't need that that in my life. Right. What I need is community, like an actual like when you think about like sub like what what's going on in Detroit with like submerged records and underground resistance, they have their own record store. They have their own pressing like like they their own uh interactions with pressing plants that are local. They have a system of or a team of artists that they work with that are all like kind of doing their own thing and it, it's they have a museum where they have like the drum machines and the keyboards that Derek may and Juan Atkins were using, and they've really kept it tight there Mm -hmm. as like a community
5: practice. Mm -hmm.
4: And that's something that's much more, um, and interesting to me than, um, lofty ideas about, well, lofty and cynical ideas about music being completely AI generated. Mm -hmm. Um, and it just, but I, I, I brought that up in the essay specifically um to point or to pinpoint this cultural divide in which i'll dare say that a certain group of people do not care about music Mm. and it's evident in the fact that you can get on spotify and pay 7.99 for all of music ever Mm. and that just that's just how i know that they don't care but even in the article itself the paragraph just before um there's a quote from vice magazine from an editor that this is an article that came out i think it was like 2014 and it just it was a really big deal when it came out but it was uh why does live techno suck so much or something like that (laughs) or like why should i see live techno music yeah and in that exact moment i i saw like You, you see, like, an editor of a music magazine literally attacking attacking the very thing that they're they're paid to care about. Mm. And so when you have this white British editor mm. writing this kind of thing about a genre that is not of his heritage, that is of Black descent, mm. and then follow that up with two white musicians that are talking about lofty futuristic ideals that will frankly make them obsolete as well, right. I'd... I, I just can't personally, I've just gotten to a point where I cannot entertain these ideas. Like, mm. like again, like 97,000 people dead on the planet. It's like, we can have AI, like technology is good enough for AI club nights, but not good enough for a vaccine. That's not acceptable to me.
0: Mm. Yeah. 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 That's so well said. Um, And yeah, your that article is amazing too, because there's a lot of things that I didn't know. Like, I didn't know that Disney was invested in vice and like, buzz media bought out spin and accelerator that's crazy i i just didn't know that so thank you for bringing that to my attention um no of
4: course the sad thing (laughs) about that article was was that it was literally my my resume and like my last like seven to eight years like in new york just in linear order and like for whatever reason i found myself at the right or wrong place at the right time (laughs) i was at accelerator like i've been i was an unpaid intern there for like a year mm. expecting to get my like you know the the fabled like staff writer position as that conversation was supposed to come around that i see people in vibe um at vibe magazine which was next door to accelerator like packing up their boxes i see like stereo gum kind of doing the same thing and they're and it and then i find out like you know, through an email that billboard via buzz media had like bought spin entirely mm. and for me what i saw was like a year's worth of unpaid work being completely just like kind of like worthless in a sense like there's no um yeah it's just interesting being like a black kid from the south trying to just jump into a job market right and then the entire thing is a monopoly board being overturned very like haphazardly while a group of 20 something djs are like emerging without a clue that like i don't know it, it's a, it's a really interesting conundrum the last like 10 years just of all of these like um, corporate mergers and buyouts that just mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. yeah, and as coronavirus is like p- picking up, all of these magazines are letting go like upwards of half of their staff right now, and a lot of these magazines won't exist by the end of the year, yeah, whether it's, it's, you it's, want to admit it or crazy. not. It's
0: crazy. I was reading somewhere, at MixMag, so they shut down their uh, headquarters here and moved everything back to London. Yeah.
4: Yeah, they were very uh, quiet about that, but um, Ooh. but their editor, longtime editor Funster, made a nice little tweet that was very helpful to me to not to note <laughs> um and yeah that was i mean yeah Mixmag they they're not in america anymore they they closed their la office they closed the new york office and now they've like consolidated all the way back to the uk but as of yesterday um this writer laura snapes wrote an article in the guardian saying that Mixmag and karong the rock magazine that they bought
0: mm-hmm. a
4: year ago probably won't make it either
0: are you serious
4: so it's i mean that's the thing it's like like pitchfork has not been doing well for years Mm. it seems like it has but condon has been laying people off in droves like every quarter and it's there's this like facade of like normalcy that's happening both in the media realm but also in like our everyday lives that's
0: yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really strange. Um I wanna talk a little bit though about your music because you're an incredible producer, an incredible DJ. Um and I think you just recently released a project, Desire of oh, Desire and Longing, I'm sorry. Um oh, yes. and yeah, it's just this really great I love this and I also love uh black nationalist Sonic Weaponry. That's a really, oh. really cool one. And it, it's this, almost this beautiful techno amalgamation of sounds and it, it, it kind of feels like a sound design piece both of both projects um yeah thanks a lot yeah. that's both it, it's
4: kind of funny so of yeah. desire longing actually it quite literally like like fell out of me one night like um just after getting more or less beaten up by the music industry and kind of like you know thrown out and was like And it it was at a point where I I recognized that maybe I wouldn't be writing any more reviews anymore because there just weren't any more jobs. Like the sort of uh, gatekeepers had collected all the pawns that they needed while they were losing money and their magazines were closing. So, like, there's a. I was kind of accepting defeat, if you will, and just got a cracked version of Ableton and just in a night made the skeleton of Desire Longing. And I had to, like, really sit with with that really sit with like what that music was and like where it came from. And it became kind of a, a a weapon for me Mm -hmm. to reassert myself into the industry against all of the things that all the negative things that we've talked about um, Mm -hmm. so far as a way of going, okay, here I am like down on my luck. How does a person how does a person adapt to the circumstances, right? Like, how can I use music to critique the actual media forms that are no longer valid? Mm. And, yeah, and no, thank you for hearing that. It is, like, sound design-y, it is techno. The hope was to kind of gut techno and remove the, like, the assumption of, like, a four on the floor and kind of do something more Farrah Sanders or more, like, John Coltrane and, like, kind yeah. of, like, actually make some kind of, like, electronic jazz, um... And i think a lot about like how derek may wanted to call techno high-tech soul and i wanted to and then like Mad Mike after came up with like high-tech bunk and high-tech jazz and i was trying to like mm. extend techno farther than than dance music into something much more like experiential mm-hmm. um and then leading into black nationalists um, sonic weaponry that was kind of a there's more of a project behind that name that I'm still formulating mm-hmm. in my head but that was a recording I did a, at a residency um, back in March um, in Florida and was yeah, still trying to sculpt like, a, a philosophical and like critical practice out of music making that, like I was saying earlier makes the music valid when music is worth point zero zero four cents, cents
5: mm. like
4: but also i mean using releases as a way to kind of figure out j- just to experiment to see like what can even be done with the the, the mode at this point um because like with of desire longing i signed to planet muse so there was a contract there was an advance fee like i owned the masters and like you know i sat with like an entertainment lawyer there was this whole like like a f- i really tried to be very like um like official with it and to kind of go through the motions uh, like of signed artist as a critic who normally would just get the press release part mm. um and the hope is that over the course of this, of this year and as things kind of continue to collapse like the hope is that i will have more answers for people um
5: right.
4: and, and also the hope is to reach out and like hopefully meet people like you that would want to talk about these issues and want to yeah, to to just figure something out yeah. while while everything's kind of being like sold up the river
0: yeah you know i and i thought that to myself the other day i was like you know if all the really great musicians and producers and djs just banded together in the community here and like i don't know opened up our own clubs or open you know created our own streaming sites or publishing and distribution chains like you know how much power that would have (laughs) i
4: mean if you want to be real about it i mean that's what the dance music industry is it's it's london manchester sometimes manchester but mostly london mm-hmm. amsterdam and berlin mm-hmm. and Ibiza, but mostly berlin and amsterdam are these two places and in london or they mm-hmm. they actually did exactly what you're referring to yeah. um where you think of a club like tresor that that like started issuing its own records it became this like staple club they even went over to detroit and like hung out with like the techno dudes and and I think they even bought a building and, like, had intended on building a club there. Mm-hmm. Of course, none of that went back to Detroit properly or any of that money. But, but what we know as, like, a, a large functioning music or dance music economy comes out of a group of people actually having thought that way. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that they may or may not have realized that they were kind of corrupt and stealing a culture and may or may not have been peddling drugs. Like... Mm-hmm. Like through like the um, summer of love movement in the 90s, and yeah, we can just kind of go down the line with all that stuff. But it just, but I guess what I'm saying is we have seen this work before. We we have been participating in in the the wealth of community uh, community, uh, I guess cooperation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's possible. It's just you know, a matter of being on the same wavelength, I guess. Um, but so when yeah. the, it's interesting. So when I ke- first came back to New York, it was around the time of Dweller. And I actually got a chance to see you, Frankie, I think it was Cyanide, and, and one other young lady, um, you know, talking about the festival. Oh, was and,
4: Camille, my editor, for oh, uh, the book I'm working on. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was just such a really great, like, inspiring talk that you guys were having about really recognizing and celebrating the tremendous influence that we have had in, you know, not only techno, but every kind of genre there is, you know, we have essentially created it, started it, um, but somehow have kind of fizzled out and... Yeah, I've gotten forgotten along the way. And I think that's what I loved so much about Dweller was realizing that, like, there's a huge influence of black artists, black producers, black songwriters and whatever else have you in this industry. And we deserve to be treated fairly and respected for everything, Um, which leads me back to make techno black again. And I bought a hat, by the way. (laughs) cool! Yeah, it's really great um can you talk yeah can you talk a little bit more about the ethos behind this brand and um were you guys going to be doing any events like pre-covid or what was your plan before all this craziness happened
4: well so it all started as a meme from um Luz fernandez who does uh who's a painter who works with my partner ting ding on this sustainable gender fluid clothing line called etcha and yeah Luz came up with this meme make techno black again they're both like, they both spent some time in Berlin. Uh, my partner lived there for years. And there's works in various clubs around New York now, such as nowadays, and, and the unterparties. And it just—I guess their idea was to kind of pay respect to, like, where where this culture had, like, initially spawned. And I saw this hat—oh, my partner jumps in. Bad. She said it happened shortly <laughs> after Trump got elected, which is— uh, <laughs> yeah it was uh, it was directly in response to make america great again mm-hmm. um which it's funny I, I saw the hat and interestingly enough i found techno semi through my parents but mm-hmm. also semi through um this guy alvin toffler this a uh, futurist and businessman that wrote a book called the third wave mm-hmm. um that kind of actually covers the basis of everything we've been talking about with like digital the digitalization of like um of produced goods. Mm -hmm. Um but anywho he came up with the term or uses the term technocracy, which is a a a government or or a system of exchange run by technical experts. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw the hat make techno black again, immediately I was just kind of like, yeah, let's make like this technocracy that was built on the backs of like black slaves from sixteen nineteen to present, like let's let's bring that back let's like actually like deconstruct what i mean one atkins had read the third wave and 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 had actually pulled this title this name techno from that book Mm. and to think about someone being like somewhat cognizant of these um how should i put it I guess being cognizant of the kind of systems of appropriation and systems of uh, capital exploitation that we're like living in, mm. and what the technological revolution has ultimately meant for Black people, which is extraction, exploitation, et cetera. It, um, yeah, it, it was just a cause worth uh, taking up, and uh, and I've always considered the hat as I've worn it, I wear it every day because I don't know, safety blanket,
5: <laughs> <laughs> but,
4: um, <laughs> but it's a thing of like. Yeah, for me, it was a distress signal or or like a kind of, um, like, I don't know, a flashlight in a cave or something and just hoping to attract others like myself, others who are interested in techno, others who don't know what techno is, and to kind of to start having this conversation, which is, yes, about dance music, but on a larger scale, it's about, like, racial oppression and categorization underneath the capitalist colonial empire Mm. like and and i try to make that clear throughout my own work and my writings that Mm -hmm. yes things are fine yes we are like quote unquote free but there is a legacy that does determine who is an essential worker now and like who is a work from home worker now like that that you can trace all of these systems back and all of these positions back to who was the slave working class and who was actually the working class Mm. who became the white collar class in like the 1910s who, and yeah, you can just kind of go down these lines. Um...
0: Right. Um, Even in the, in the talk that you guys were having during Dweller, it was interesting to hear that, you know, a lot of the, the, the creators and the founders of techno like Derek May, Um, and and some of the bigger DJs, they don't really talk about these issues. They're not vocal about them, which I find to be um, troublesome too, because they're not really saying anything about it. It's just kind of like this elephant in the room.
4: It's an interesting thing. And so, okay, I've been working on this book, um, which was kind of mentioned during the talk, uh, called Assembling a Black Counterculture, which extends from like the purpose of the Make Techno Black Again campaign, Mm. but kind of taking my background as a media theorist and trying to really churn like a really cohesive history of America and the birth of techno as like a singular like related unit mm. um, and explaining like how a black person would come up with techno. Like why mm-hmm. would we think about uh like techno music and <laughs> <laughs> it just... Yeah, there's um, so when you get into like the the originators and their thoughts on it, mm-hmm. it, it actually gets kind of it. Okay, so I think what happened was this in 1988 there was a, a compilation put out by Tin Records um, in uh, in London,
5: mm-hmm.
4: and they were owned by Virgin Records, and the the whole idea was that Derek May they had asked Derek May Neil Rushton had asked Derek May to release. Uh, some tracks, mm-hmm. but they didn't want a full Derek May album. They just wanted some tracks. And Derek goes, "Well, hey, there's some other dudes over here, like Juan, who had invented the genre. There's my friend Kevin saunderson mm. and uh, this other dude, Eddie folks and like he just brings in like, you know, all 20 Detroit producers or whatever. And he's like, okay, let's make a compilation called, you know, techno. Well, Derek May wanted to call it High Tech Soul, but Juan was like, I invented it, you know, let me name it techno." when you read the liner notes for this release um which was the release that gave that permeated the name techno across europe Mm -hmm. um in the liner notes there is a guy named scott or no stewart cosgrove who he's a he's a journalist like a scottish journalist i believe when you read his notes uh he is very interesting in his wording of things um You'll see things like saying that techno is not a part of the the black continuum of music, that techno is not soul music, techno is not jazz. Mm. And then it will, their liner notes dip into a a statement or, or quotes from Derek May, in which Derek May brings up how he wanted his music to sound like George Clinton and Parliament and Funkadelic in an elevator with Kraftwerk. Mm. What, and what I got from that was a sort of Afro Germanic connection of. Of, of you know german electronic musicians sitting down with these black guys that have been using similar gear and coming up with like a global sound what stewart cosgrove heard was techno was influenced by Kraftwerk, and then you cut out george clinton and so the rest of the article becomes about this fanciful kind of um actually what we were talking about before with grimes and uh holly herndon and like the ai thing it mm-hmm. it became a very wonder lustful like idea of techno futurism by these young uh yeah these young black kids but they don't really say black but they're like young black kids who are thinking about the future and that's what the europeans got mm. and as you go through as i started going through like other archival interviews their presence gets kind of like slowly obscured by these uh, assumptions of what the genre should be as like producers in london and like amsterdam and the and all that stuff start kind of creating their own replicas of the detroit sound and the chicago sound mm. what happens past say like 92 i can't speak to But it seems as though there was a kind of um, a narrative that was prescribed onto the genre and whatever they had to say about it no longer really mattered. Mm -hmm. There's actually an interview, um, I believe it's around 94, where Derek May... No, no, actually it was around 88. um, When the compilation comes out, he goes over to Europe and he's playing in Amsterdam. And in London and Derek May is like, interesting. They don't like the music I'm playing. He he like notices that the the audience actually does not respond wow. at all. Um and eventually has to go back home after the tour. He doesn't make enough money off the tour, but techno keeps going in Europe and Derek May goes home. Mm. And that that split right there is it's kind of why we don't or why we're just kind of now finding out what we know about techno it's mm-hmm. and that that's a lot of the purpose of the book that i'm trying to write is to really i mean to recognize that at the time derek and juan and and kevin they were all like between the ages of like 17 and 20 and that, that that's a this is a lot of stuff to put on the shoulders of like of youth right. that are just you know trying to do something new And so the hope is to work through all of this information and to kind of fill in both the intellectual gaps of, you know, what it means for a youth to be reading, like, a giant, like, media theory book about economics and data information and, like, and trying to, like, fill in the gaps of, like, what, um, yeah, what techno means in a broader sense. um,
0: Right. Right. Well, this, this is going to be awesome. I can't wait until it's finished. Are you kind of finished with it or is everything still in the works?
4: <laughs> it's, it's still in the works, but it's it's getting there. It's a weird thing because like I've been working with uh, my editor Camille on um, on a really long like timeline that starts at more or less like the gold rush and ends around the year 2008-ish. Right. Um, the reason I choose 2008 is that that's around the time of the vinyl um, Uh boom kind of kicks back in and people are buying vinyl again and suddenly you start seeing these like drexia compilations coming out suddenly you start seeing reissues of like uh metroplex records um mm. and it's I, I kind of want to show how black labor is constantly lifted and monetized without i mean Marx has a term for this right it's called a how black people are alienated from our labor, mm-hmm. and and alienated from the products of our labor, um, mm. and yeah, that's
0: yeah, yeah, a, yeah, that's I can't wait. Um, when when you are finished with it, I will definitely be reading it. Um, I don't want to keep you too long because we've already been talking for like forty three minutes now. Um, oh. yeah, this is awesome, but what are your, what are your hopes? What are your hopes for when we get out of this whole period and we can return to somewhat of a normal life? What would you like to see done differently?
4: Admittedly, I would like for a full recognition that whatever normalcy we come to, like after this point, isn't the normal that we left. It's it, it like, hopefully we can really adapt and, create like i would like to see a new a really new normal form where we're not thinking about things like yeah it, it just if anything covid has made me in relation to dance music has made me think about how unessential it is mm. um and i don't mean that in a crass or crude way but it's just like just like actually like when you're thinking about what kind of money is being pumped into nightlife from alcohol sales to eventually like Paris Hilton and like the, the J J. P Morgan chase, um, CEO, like being a DJ, like there's so much luxury involved in this form that is meant to be kind of more of a, a tool for narrativization and a tool for, um, for archiving. And it just, I would like to see much more critical engagement with what it is we have been doing over the last thirty years or so with with this genre, mm-hmm. and hopefully more, um, yeah, just more investigations into what we have done. I mean, it seems like where a lot of people are heading now is yes, the live streams, but also the the idea of newsletters, zines. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems like everything's kind of getting more localized. And, and and that's what I... That's what I would like to see. It's
0: something... Yeah, yeah. actually... More... Mm-hmm. No, that was okay. You can continue. I just, I just had a quick question after that.
5: Oh,
0: no, that's all. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> actually, really quickly, I just thought of this now. What were your thoughts about the band camp, the past two band camp days where, you know, band camp essentially waives oh, all man, the revenue oh. fee? Do you think that that was at least a you know, a move in the right direction in terms of brands realizing that obviously this point in time is extremely hard for artists and and trying to provide some sort of relief. Did you think it was a good move?
4: Yes and no. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because like, I mean, I'll say I dropped a track on, or um, an EP on Bandcamp actually to kind of test it out myself Mm -hmm. um, a few weeks ago. And it, I made a, Pretty decent amount of money off of it, and it really <laughs> freaked me out. Honestly, like I, I sat <laughs> with my PayPal account and was like, "Oh my god, this is." I I kind of suddenly saw why a younger group of producers are less willing to wait for a full vinyl release and a press package, and less willing to sign away like their tracks. And mm. and it made a lot of sense. Like you can really localize through through Bandcamp, but. I have to also remind that Bandcamp did pop up around 2008, around the same time as that vinyl re- uh, boom, mm. and we're looking at it like a, a monopoly forming, whether they mean it or not. It, it like Bandcamp is a monopoly of content, where it, yeah, and we just have to be conscious of like, because like when you think about something like a Bandcamp day suddenly you have a bunch of people flooding towards releasing their records on one day Mm. so they can get this like tax free this tax break which is what it is if you kind of think about it um and suddenly i mean i remember when music releases switched from coming out on tuesday to friday and how big of a deal that was because the whole thing is like i used to work in a barnes and noble and like we would get new books and new music on tuesdays and new movies on Fridays, Mm. and that was a good way to like both disperse like your your um your leisure spending, but also it yeah, it just
0: Yeah. yeah <laughs> I mean yeah, we yeah. can go in circles, yeah. yeah that's very true. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it's uh I mean I thought it was a good step in the right direction. I mean I'm not a producer, so I, um, you know, I don't I don't necessarily understand it from that aspect. But for me, as a music lover and avid buyer of music, I was like, oh, hell yeah. You know, like a chance for me to support. I mean, not that I wouldn't have if it wasn't Bandcamp Day, but another um, added incentive value to support the artists that i love by you know buying a whole bunch of stuff on that day and then all of the the money goes tr- directly to them but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done i know spotify was trying to do something similar where they were gonna rave uh, the revenue share too but i don't know if yeah, that it was actually like
4: donations yeah which oh, is right. interesting yeah my goodness well cool. and that's what's interesting about spotify right is that Weeks later, they suddenly have a hundred million dollars to give to a random podcaster. we well, not a random; Joe Rogan's kind of
5: big, <laughs> but
4: but it's it, it's interesting. um and, and yeah, I mean, what you want from a date like Bandcamp Day is, is like what you're saying is for people to go, you know, what I am going to support, like a musician, yeah. like I'm going to actually go out and. And I've heard a lot of people suggesting the like the subscription model where you kind of like pay patronage to an artist, like they they drop a release and you like pay them in a like, sort of um patreon kind of style mm-hmm. i'm a little dubious of that as well but i mean again it's it's about the love of it right if people love music and love artists enough to support mm-hmm. then that's really like that's really where our heads need to be at i guess no. Or not a guess. I know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, awesome. If people want to learn more about you and listen to your music, where do they find you?
4: Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I try to be everywhere at once, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, Bandcamp under speaker music, uh, SoundCloud under speaker music. Uh, Medium is where some of my articles have shown up um, mm-hmm. under my own name, DeForest Brown Jr. And then... The book, Assembling a Black Counterculture, will be out in, I think it's November now um, of this year.
0: So we're coming out of the interview with me, and uh, Speaker Music is his artist name, uh, but DeForest Brown Jr., and he's incredible. I mean, he's written so much about how streaming has been unfair to artists, um, and especially in a time where we're flocking to these apps and bringing content um, and really looking to... Uh, gain some financial relief from these platforms that we put our music on, it's been tough to not receive that same support back. And beyond the pandemic, this has been happening for a a long time. So it's interesting to hear his perspective, especially for me because I'm, you know, I'm just a DJ. I don't actually make my own music, um, but it's good for me to know, right, for when I'm playing other people's tracks, how can I better support them? You know, how do those songs... When I'm playing them on, let's say, a Facebook, Twitch, or Instagram, how can those artists benefit from me playing it, you know? There should be some sort of payment system set up. Um, I know that when I talked to a couple of folks, they were saying that they're trying to implement some sort of uh, music, almost like music tracking software in clubs, where if you play a song, the artists can then, you know, a small amount of pay from that as well. Kind of like what Nielsen does with radio, right? Like they are able to control and see how many songs are played on the radio and then that music then comes back to the artist. So I think a similar method should be implemented with these uh, streaming platforms as well in terms of DJ sets and then expand on it further in actual clubs and festivals too. We'll see. I think we're going to come a long way. This pandemic is definitely going to bring those issues to light. And it's good to see that um, organizations like the Music Workers Alliance are thinking about these things, bringing people together to actually have a dialogue and create change. Um, Recently, they bought their petition, uh, Economic Injustice Within the Digital Domain, to Congress, so that's a good look. Congress is already looking at it and considering on making changes. So it's small. It's a small series of steps that could possibly grow into something bigger. Um, but it's good that those steps are being taken now. And if you'd like to become a part of the change, I have a link to Music Workers Alliance's website at the bottom. Uh, I think they've been doing bi weekly meetings, which I've been able to attend. They've been great. Did a great... Um, zoom info session on copyright laws which was very beneficial if you're an artist and you make music or if you dj um these are things that you should know uh, how to protect your work and your masters and your publishing which i really want to do a whole episode on because i think it's so uh, imperative that folks know about these things and how to protect yourself protect your work from being Stolen, essentially, or repurposed without your consent. Um, and then shout out, big shout out to DeForest Brown. He's in, incredible what he's doing with Make Techno Black again. And, and um, you know, all of his, his intention to really make sure that um, people who look like me and him are respected, valued and recognized in techno and electronic music in general. So I appreciate him. Uh, please, if you'd like to make a donation to the club management podcast you can at patreon.com slash club management one and you can feel free to follow me on instagram and twitter at shannon1dj until next time folks